Hey everybody, this is Brent Watkinson with Everyday Artist. Before I introduce the guest for this episode, I am compelled to explain part of my mental game of generating this podcast. I will now enter unapologetically into a rather pleonastic justification of my thoughts because I believe it is important to you, the listener, a little behind the scenes, if you will. Many of the interviewees are my friends. Most of them are longtime friends, such as the case with John English. Others on this podcast were, they were complete strangers until I invited them to be a part of this recent venture. For example, John and Megan Schmidt, the owners of the Eat Schmidt food truck. I just like to say that. They were total strangers until I ordered and ate their food that they were serving at a public event. I saw their truck. I saw their smiles. I heard the classic rock and roll that blasted from their exterior speakers. And again, I ate their food. And I instantly recognized, in my mind at any rate, that they had their own unique point of view on their food. So I basically got to know them, in air quotes, while I interviewed them and with a few emails. The same was true with David Almeida, the software project manager and potter. I saw him selling his pottery at an outdoor public event, and since I had more hours in school throwing pots and making ceramics than drawing and painting, I was drawn to his display And his work was so beautiful and delicate that I felt it necessary to touch it. So I asked permission, and he smiled, and he told me he'd love for me or anyone to admire ceramics with touch and closer inspection. The piece I picked up was lighter than I expected, which is a, that is a real badge of honor worn by those who make pieces of this type of creation, and I immediately turned it upside down to see the bottom. And as a former potter myself, I admired the fact that David had produced what is called a foot on the bottom of the piece. Um, I guess I can explain this by perhaps calling it a rim, or in furniture terms, a cleat. And this step takes more time, more patience, and yet another special skill set to produce, as opposed to doing what is called throwing on the bat, for all my potter friends listening out there. Both procedures are perfectly legitimate and acceptable, yet carving a foot on a piece is just that extra layer of craft and love that once again coerced me into asking David to be a part of this podcast journey. The reason I've related these thoughts and facts is that the single most difficult part of this podcast is writing the introductions about the guests. I just think how egocentric and pompous of me to think that I can somehow encapsulate the lives and accomplishments of these beautiful and thoughtful people that are so incredibly kind to share their time and ideas and stories and many times their most intimate personal specifics with such a wide and appreciative global audience. 
I'm constantly fastidiously humbled to be a facilitator, a conduit, if you will, to the prodigious and fascinating information that my guests supply for us to devour. I'm in awe of each and every one of them, and I can't thank them enough for wanting. Yes, they want to help others and maybe give a glimmer of hope to some and to inspire others and to put their stories out there in the ether in hopes that their message may touch one person and get them to the next level in their lives or the next level in their pursuit of whatever they wish to accomplish. My guests are truly gold in my estimation because they are people. Loving, caring, surprising, considerate, gracious people. And they are all bonded by being good and pursuing excellence in what they do each day, every day, every day. This is the true artistry. So that, my friends, is what I am faced with every time I sit down to write an introduction. But I will keep trying. (laughs) I'll give it my best shot. That being said, this episode's guest is Sterling Hundley. His website is cleverly called sterlinghunley.com. You can see a few pieces of his work on my website, brentwatkinson.com. And as always, I will provide a link directly to Sterling's site for your convenience. You know I love you, so I do that. And of course, his site is replete with information and images that will astound and entertain you. I met Sterling when he was a student at the Illustration Academy many years ago. I won't put a timestamp on it. That's up to Sterling to talk about. And John English later invited Sterling back to the Illustration Academy to teach. That's what John thought about Sterling and his accomplishments. At the present, Sterling is a professor in the Department of Communication Arts at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, otherwise known as VCU, and still teaches at the Illustration Academy during their summer sessions. He is also the founder of Legendeer, an international community-based initiative focused on the pursuit of direct experience as the catalyst of the creative process. And Sterling and I talk about Legendeer during this interview. And as if old Sterling doesn't have enough going on, he has also created the online education program, The Ideation Lab. And Sterling for many years has been known for his teaching and his concepts about ideation. He has so many accomplishments, shows, awards, and things that he's done and accomplished and is currently working on that my introduction would be longer than the actual show. So please take the time to visit his website to read for yourself about his clients and exhibitions and publications, of which there are many. Talk about your mental game. 
This cat is all about it, and we dig pretty deep into how and why the cerebral side of doing anything is the driving force behind success, as well as actually having a top-notch body of quality work, no matter what it is that you do. The mental sculpting of life. Pretty scary to think about, but it's the essence of it all, whether you're aware of it or not. Finally, I present to you, my faithful listeners, my longtime friend and colleague, Sterling Hundley. Let's get into it. Sterling, let's start by having you tell us a little bit about, or a lot about, all of your current projects. And I know you're a busy guy doing a lot of things. Yeah, thanks for asking. I, I tell you, as I get older, I keep thinking I'm going to simplify my life. And, you know, one opportunity leads to another opportunity. So I've gotten uh, pretty broad recently with what I'm doing. I just finished up a... Uh, a picture book for Abrams that's set to come out in April. And uh, that's going to be a pretty big push when it comes out. And I remember uh, that because I think I just shared it on um, social media. It, it amazing looking work, what I've seen so far as usual. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's one of those things, man, I've done books in the past and you know, I'm happy with parts of them and not happy with others. And I actually just went in very deliberately to try to have some complete, you know, portfolio of something when it was finished. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty pleased with how it came out. How many images in the book? Uh, I think there's 28. I ended up doing something like 33 and there were uh, several that were cut, just they didn't make sense with the design and, you know, more of the spots and everything else that, that we didn't use for decorative elements. But yeah, so it's, it's a lot of, a lot of pieces and a big chunk of my life. And, you know, I'm glad it's behind me, but had an awesome experience with the, um, with the publisher and really great kind of, uh, developing relationship with the writer, which came afterwards, believe it or not. But, um, that's been, it's been great. I'm, I'm really excited to see what their PR team does with it and, and how it's received. And who is the publisher again? This is Abrams. Okay. Up in New York. Right. So I've done that and, uh, let's see, I'm teaching, at the university still. So I'm at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University and I considered full-time there, which is three classes uh, a semester. And a big part of what they expect is that you continue with your own research while you're doing that. It's not, a, not an option. It's something that's uh, part of your responsibility. So that's kind of a, a very sweet situation there. And let's see, I teach online. I've got a, a program right now through the uh, Society of Visual Storytellers, and that's called uh, the Ideation Lab. And it's just a four-week intensive on idea development. And uh, the second part's coming out in March. That'll be moving from uh, commercial art to making commercial art personal. So getting into things like personal voice and different direction there. And let's see, I uh, wrapped up a, a solo exhibition last year of paintings, and uh, that was a huge push and huge relief when that was done. And uh, of course, I'm still uh, running Legendeer, which is dedicated to embedding artists back out 
back into the world. We're heading out to um, the Pacific Northwest this summer, and we're going to be going to the Olympic Peninsula for, with 40 to 50 of our closest creative friends to uh, seek personal experiences and try to shape those into creative content. Lots of pretty things to look at in the Pacific Northwest, I'm sure. I, I belong out there. I mean, I, I'm convinced. <laughs> Those are your people? Time. Well, it just it's my place. I, you go there and it's this, I can't find any other word for it other than it just feels uh, deep and it feels haunted. I mean, like a, like this nostalgic. Oh, uh, I like that. Uh, melancholy or something that, that hangs on the trees. And I, I just feel it when I go out there. But yeah, well, I kind of And you that. were born and reared in Appalachia. So you're kind of a mountain guy, stream guy, outdoor guy. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, Roanoke, Virginia is certainly in that direction. And I, I was taken out into nature a lot as a kid. Uh, we, we lived kind of in the, uh, the city and the suburbs of, of the city a little bit, but I've always identified with just being outdoors and, and those kind of really formative memories of being in a canoe, being on the water, camping, dad would take us out on these three day survival trips with no food and, you know, the rifle and we <laughs> and had we to, laugh. <laughs> uh, yeah, we had to, you know, catch what we ate and we never caught anything. So we, uh, we'd always miraculously end up at a, uh, an apple orchard and just take these shirts full of, of apples and stuff our faces. So it was, uh, yeah, I love that stuff. So when you say we, that was your older brother and your dad and you that did mom tag along also? Yeah, she was there. She's in all the memories. Um, mom grew up in Montana and her, uh, her father was um, the uh, number one guy in the National Forest Service for some time uh, and they lived in D.C. But prior to that, their time in Montana, he was a forest ranger and, you know, she grew up on, you know, spending summers on top of lookout towers and uh, fire lookout towers and, and, and camps and everything else. And I'm actually trying to organize a trip right now where we're going to head out to Montana to revisit where she grew up. I'm just really, really excited and curious to see it. But yeah, so she's, she's as tough as, as dad and, um, you know, just, she, she gets in there, she camps and, um, she's very hands-on, very physical and, um, this kind of dichotomy of super sweet, super giving, but also very, very tough. She is a super sweet lady. I've met her a couple of times and she is the consummate Southern gentle person, gentle lady. <laughs> uh, your dad is a gentleman and the, the definition of those terms is that they are very aware of people around them and wanting to make them comfortable. So when I was your guest, I was made extremely comfortable by your parents. And I think that old saying of Southern hospitality certainly rings true in your family. And I know you're that way also. I'll tell you, Brent, you, uh, you know, this firsthand moonshine will make you comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> How ironic that we should yeah. talk about moonshine. Uh, I just did, uh, since you brought it up, I just did a little uh, keynote presentation because my class, I told my class at the Art Institute, I said, what am I looking for in your work? And I put up a 
a big jug of moonshine, like a cartoon, basically, uh, icon of a jug of moonshine. And I said, I want you to distill all this information and all these stories and all this stuff, all these words, all the ideation, all the icons. And then it comes out is this really strong, pure, crystal clear moonshine. That's what I'm looking for. And they looked at me like I'm insane. No, that's great. (laughs) Uh, Maybe they just haven't had real moonshine. Well, I took them through the process, but no, they're too young. They haven't (laughs) had the real stuff. Like, uh, I got a little taste at your house when your dad was being very generous. That was the last of it. That was the last of the moonshine. Yes. Uh, Yeah. Interesting story behind that, that, that we don't need to go into, but, uh, again, you're, your family was always very generous, very gracious, and uh, yes, comfort was was uh, very good that night. So obviously, family was a huge part of your life growing up, and I want to get back on to your long list of things and projects that you're working on, but since you brought up your mother and being from Montana, she actually was an artist when you were growing up. Tell us a little bit about that. When you're a kid, you don't know that your your environment is unique or that your parents are different or the same as anybody else. As you get older, you start to realize those things. But yeah, mom was a um, was and is a, uh, a creative in the truest sense of the, uh, of the term. But uh, worked as a designer, uh, as an illustrator, and you know I didn't know what she did. I just knew that we had a lot of cool books sitting around and that she could pretty much make anything. And what, um, what kind so of I, books? What were you looking at? Communication Arts uh, Magazine. Ah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I can't remember all the titles, but uh, I'm sure it was Print Magazine, all the the trade designer magazines uh, growing up. And there were a lot of, uh, you know, just how to draw the figure and things like that, that, you know, were sitting around and, and uh, Southwest Magazine uh, was everywhere in our house. I'm sure I can credit some of my my process and understanding to, to Bev Doolittle somewhere down the road. So <laughs> that's a good name. Yeah. Yeah. Mom was, uh, was always working on something creative and still is. My dad has been obsessed with, uh, history, specifically civil war history and native American history. And that's why actually why we're in Richmond and would go out and still does, uh, goes out metal detecting and treasure hunting. And so I grew up with this really interesting aesthetic where our house is surrounded with, um, just these display cases that mom makes of things that my dad finds the Civil War artifacts, artillery shells, buttons, buckles, you name it. Native American arrowheads and spear points and clay pottery. And so just broken, rusted, ground down things just put on display and and a reverence for history. So that really ties into everything that you're doing. Uh, Your mom was creative. Your dad was creative. Your mom and dad are both entrepreneurs. You are an entrepreneur. So all of these things that you grew up with and doing right now, what you're doing is an extension of all of that. I think I'm trying to relive my childhood pretty much. Well, good for you. (laughs) (laughs) So you are putting together the Legendere to the Pacific Northwest. What else? With Legendere specifically or what else is going on on the back burner here? <laughs> oh yes. What else is going on the back burner? Because you teach online, you teach at a brick and mortar, uh, you have shows, you're continually working on your illustration career, your painting career, and trying to put up a, um, 
trying to put together a, a nice trip to your mom's homeland. Yeah. So that's all, um, things that are happening. I've got a, um, when I signed on for the book with Abrams, I actually was really excited about writing my own stories and my own uh, children's books. And I was a big part of the reason I took on the job was to foster that relationship. And it turns out that the relationship with the writer has uh, extended into a, a new opportunity with a, a new agent. And uh, I'm pitching to that agent my picture book in uh, just a couple of weeks. So I'm, I'm putting that together right now. We're constantly trying to find different ways to fund and, and support uh, Legendeer through merchandise and through education and different tools there. I've got a uh, Kickstarter that I launched back in December, I guess I launched and it funded. So I'm putting together a, um, a compilation of my my journals, my dr drawings from observation and, uh, you know, everything that kind of goes with all that stuff, the figuring out where to get it printed, the most efficient way to do that, just the, the dollars and cents of these different business endeavors. And then uh, somewhere in that space, I'm trying to be a, a, a great dad and, and a, a decent husband at least. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so what I've found, Brent, is uh, that all of these things that seem like they're disconnected, they're directly connected with another uh, with each other. So Legendary was built with the intention of trying to figure out how to bring together the most important things in my life, my health, my relationships, my business, and recreation. And it was a question long before it was ever an answer. And the creative act of, of pushing forward with uh, trying to make something is, for me, always trying to fulfill, you know, trying to answer some question that I have. So it's like, can I bring these things together? And Legendary became the answer. Jeff Love talked about similar things going on in his life. And basically what you're saying, and basically what Jeff was saying is that instead of getting beat up and pushed around by life, you're trying to take control of your life and beat up and push around all those random elements and make them into something. You're trying to do what I call sculpting your life. You're trying to own it and take control of it, not as a control freak, but you that's exactly where Legendaire came from, I think. Yeah, and the books that I want to write, too. Uh, they're all informed from direct experiences that I want to have with my kids. Uh, the you know protagonist is modeled around my daughter and it's setting us up if they get supported that we're going to be able to travel and have these experiences that are going to inform the stories. And, you know, ironically, you know, Jeff was here working with me in my studio during my first solo show when my daughter was born. That's where a lot of this stuff really fell apart. Uh, a number of things in my life fell apart as I was sitting there working these crazy hours with, it was both Jeff and Leslie Herman were here and we were putting this thing together. And in the next room, we were working in the garage in the next room, my daughter was, was crying and my wife was taking care of her. And I couldn't, I couldn't even be in the room with them because I was so pressed for time and overwhelmed. And it made me rescript and rethink a lot of things. And I, I would be willing to bet that Jeff looked at my life and probably decided that you know, I, I don't want, I don't want to be doing that. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, so again, you were teaching and didn't even know it. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're always teaching. We're always learning, but yeah, it's sculpting your life, designing your life. That's all of these design principles that we, we want to apply to other people's creative problems, scale up perfectly to 
allow you to, to analyze and to assess and to start to design what you want out of your own life. I think that's a great deal of where this podcast came from out of the blue was because I just kept thinking, man, I know these wonderful, beautifully intelligent, smart people, and I want to talk to them (laughs) and I want to talk to them again. And, and I missed being around the people that I had, um, uh, made relationships with. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just, I'll start a podcast and I will get to talk to these people and strangers and people that I don't know and good friends and past friends and maybe make some new friends. I, I think a lot of times we kind of, as creative people, just start doing things that make us feel good and kind of scratch that itch in our brain, no matter what it is, whether it's painting or drawing or you want to have a certain relationship with your family and use that as a catalyst for stories and travel you mentioned. And I think that's brilliant. Well, I feel the same about the podcast. As soon as I heard you were doing this, I mean, we've had so many conversations in the past. We've talked, we've known each other for years and uh, to see you doing this, it's just, it's, I think what we do as creatives uh, from the outside, people look at it and they, uh, they assume that we have all this freedom and that freedom is, you know, this, this incredible thing for, uh, for creators to have. I think that too much freedom is actually a terrible thing. And anytime that I have too much creative freedom, I, I, I just freeze. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to move forward. But when I start looking at limitations, resources, tools, people, things, uh, timeline, context, space, audience, story, whatever it is, I start looking at those things and the ability to bring them together starts to force you to move forward and allows you to actually truly begin to solve problems. The podcast for you, looking at the relationships that you have already and, you know, our favorite thing to do sometimes is just grab a bit of whiskey and have a conversation when we get together. This is a lot like that. So I think that it's a, it's a really great thing that you're doing and it's, it seems perfect. It's, it's a perfect fit. I'm not sure how to phrase this question or how to couch this question, but I observed in the late 90s and through the 2000s that your work, Sterling, was basically, and this is mostly illustration work at the time, most of that work was what I would call shape-based. Your pictures, your images were based on really strong shape-making. And somewhere late 2000s, early 2010s, and again, this is my observation and I could be wrong, it became more based on pattern instead of shape. Do you have any thoughts about my observation? Just uh, probably as I was growing from a young artist who was told this is, these are the important things and trying to acquire those skill sets and, and to make pictures that were about the important things. And I, I mean, aesthetically the important things and moving into things that allowed me to challenge what I was taught and challenge what I was told uh, and say, okay, well, yeah, those are the important things. And now that I know the fundamentals and I, know how to uh, to do those things, then I really get to start 
challenging that that as an idea. And uh, so I don't know exactly where pattern came from and what falls into the definition of pattern, but I always have a question that I'm pursuing and I'm trying to figure out uh, how to answer that question through the work. So I would say that patterns in my work scale all the way up to a concept of, of systems and, you know, things that, that you might see that are consistent throughout the work over a period of time, because I'm trying to solve the same problem through multiple pieces of work. Not sure if I'm answering your question right, but you know, it's, I've taken so many turns, but they've all been very deliberate, oftentimes turns away from something as I'm also turning into something. I do like your answer because my next part of that question was, if and when that did happen, was it just a, a gentle evolution that just kind of evolved from you just constantly working? Or was it more that you were trying to point things in a certain direction or some of both? Or uh, in other words, were you hyper aware of it and you did it on purpose or was it just accidental and that's what your work looked like? Hyper aware, a very deliberate part of that answer is that I have deliberately let chaos into my process as part of the process. Now that sounds like a contradiction, but if you start with control and then you welcome chaos in and then you bring things back in control, then you're deliberately letting chaos, you know, be part of what you're doing on a global level. There's, there's always a curiosity that I'm trying to, to answer. And it, what I, what I discovered pretty early on was that when you're doing a client-based commission, they have an audience, they have an industry and those businesses that are commissioning you to do a piece of artwork, they are very much governed by time and money. And that's not a, positive or a negative it just is they they have people who expect a product on a certain timeline and you help them basically sell that product by creating visuals for it and uh i don't know of any artists that you speak to if you ask them what do you want to be governed by this is like certainly not going to be time and money so i tried to take ownership of that idea and i started going into things that were important to me and it started off with a technique okay i'm interested in line i'm interested in tone and i tried to use any client work that came in to help me reconcile. Can I bring line and tone together? And I still solve their problems. Which is a difficult thing to do to perhaps students that are listening out there, because if you go half line and half tone, you're sunk because it just, those two things, those two components are going to fight. So what were you trying to do with the marriage of those two? Was there always a percentage of one being higher or lower? I, I didn't know. And, and that's, I guess, kind of the point is I, when I have these questions, it, it's always a, a flag that I plant beyond the horizon that I can see. And if I could see it in somebody else's work, then I wasn't curious in doing it. But if I was just curious about the concept of, can I bring these two things together? Then that became a driving factor. And it's, it's hard to, to put it into words. Um, but as I was going through these uh, technical things and, and trying to figure it out, like I kept getting a little bit closer and a little bit closer with every piece that I would do. And I, I do vividly remember each time I re reset what the question was, I remember arriving at the answer and I didn't have to have anybody tell me that I figured it out or that it was good or whatever. I, I knew that I'd arrived at this thing I was looking for, even though I didn't know what it looked like. So that's the contradictory part of this thing. It's like, it felt right 
because I had been investing in so for so long in this uh, this concept that when I finally figured it out, I I mean the first time I ever did this, I was working on an illustration and I had this very vivid thought. It's like, wow, I figured it out. If I if I'm ever gonna get recognition for a piece of artwork, this is it. And of course in illustration that's to win a medal. If I'm ever gonna win a medal from the Society of Illustrators, this is the piece. And I sent it off. Two months later, I get a letter back from the Society of Illustrators and I got my first medal. So I had this assumption that I was right, that I had finally figured out how these pieces fit together. And then the validation came later on professionally. And uh, that's just been a, a pattern that I've been able to repeat over and over again, pursuing something, knowing when I figured it out, and then the professional or public recognition follows that. Well, when you achieved that goal when you were sitting in your studio and said, aha, I think I've done this. Did it still look like your work? Was it completely different? Uh, would I have recognized it as yours at the time? Oh, totally. And, and it became, it became one of the pieces that people recognized me for, right? It's, it's the piece that actually, you know, it was the, uh, the Shakespeare in the park piece. I'm not sure if you remember that, but it's, uh, I do. You actually glued a little quill from a crow quill pen on the beak of a bird. Yeah. You remember it quite well. So <laughs> I remember it very well. Yeah. So that, that piece set up the entire trajectory for the next part of my career because people saw that it got into the shows. I started getting hired to do more work like that. And it was interesting. As soon as I had solved that problem, I became uninterested in that problem. So I, I reset the, the framework and said, okay, well, it's not line and tone anymore. I'm going to try to figure out now, can I make this work conceptually? And I said, honesty versus illusion. And those became really important words. And I wanted to see visually what that would look like if that affected. So the, the answer to your question is the piece that I made related directly to all the pieces for the previous two years that I had done chasing that concept even though in all of those, I never quite got it right. And it was in that piece where I figured it out, but that, that became a body of work for me that showed a consistency. It showed a voice and um, really tied everything together. So they were very related to each other. And about the same time when you were working on that Shakespeare in the park piece that we discussed, you and I were very involved with the illustration Academy. And at that time, it actually was at VCU in Richmond. And I remember you working on illustration jobs, uh, real world jobs while we were doing work at the Academy that uh, you were teaching, I was teaching. And I just remember watching you write down dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of words in your sketchbook. And you were drawing icons, little miniature pictures that were maybe an inch square. And it just seemed like you were suffering through this ideation. And <laughs> I mean, I just remember the look on your face. Now you did amazing work out of that so-called suffering because you were doing a series of uh, theater posters and I don't know what all, but what do you remember about that time? Just being on all the time. I think that uh, I, back then and, and, even up until recent years, I had a really rough year this past year with just being overbooked and over obligated, just time management, right? So 
you know, being well, the that's place who for you us. are, Sterling. You never say no. You're always overbooked. Well, but putting things on a calendar now and seeing that there's space in between and, and trying to provide hours that I'm available or not available for my family, you know, that that's, that's become actually really critical and something I've had to, to learn some very hard lessons on. So yeah, I, I, I don't rest, I, I don't vacation. Well, I tell people, you know, I'm, I'm always, <laughs> I have to do something. And one of the things that I've found that has really quieted my mind is uh, this, this last exhibition has been this per- solo show that I did has been a, um, it's been like a 10 year journey for me trying to marry process and content and message and story and uh, aesthetic and all those things. And, and I figured out, this is another one of these big puzzle pieces that I figured out this year is like, wow, I finally have a body of work that brings together everything that's important to me in a process that I could see committing myself to for the next 10 years, whatever it is. And that gives me the confidence to actually finally take it out uh, to New York and to LA, wherever else I want to go. I, I've been terrified of, this sounds really strange, but I've been terrified of finding success as a painter for things that I have no interest in painting. Like, well, congratulations, you sold your paintings. Your next show is expected to look like the last show. And I've been really very deliberate about taking my time to figure out what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. But the 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 real turning point for me, Brent, was just realizing how important my kids and my wife and, and my family were and or, or are. And I just turned the the subject around and, and just I'm making it about time. And through the studying of my family and our, our habits and our routines, I'm finding the face and the, the, a portrait of time. And um, what that does for me is it, it means my kids might be watching a movie, but I've got my sketchbook or my canvases and I'm able to watch them watch the movie and I'm there, I'm present, I'm in the moment. And um, yeah, so just drawing in, in my sketchbooks and choosing to draw the things that I, the, the people and the things that I want to spend time with is, it's been amazing. I mean, it's been really a tying together of things that we feel are disconnected, you know, family and business. And all of a sudden it's like, no, they're, it's okay if they're actually married and that they are, you know, my, my art career and my pursuits there are one and the same with my family. That's very ironic that you would bring that up because one of my questions that I have here for you was to be, how good are you about being present and in the moment? And it sounds like maybe you're getting better at it. Or have you always been been good at it? No, I've not always been good at it. I uh, I tell folks that I live in the future. My brain is always on to next things and, and, you know, solving something else. So I, I had to find a tool and a device that would allow me to, to be in the moment because as a parent, you know, you're pretty worthless if, uh, if you're always daydreaming. So, um, yeah, I've, I've gotten, I've gotten much, much, much better at being in the moment. But again, I had to find that thing that I could do that quieted the noise. And, um, for me, drawing is it ironically. Uh, the thing that, that you would think might take me away. If I choose to look at something and, and document it, I'm very aware of what's happening in that moment. You know this, I grew up playing sports and uh, the only other things that I've found that relate to something like that are like when I play basketball. I can't think about anything else when I play basketball except playing basketball because I'm 
I'm embedded and I am entrenched in the sport and the game in that moment. And I have to react in real time. And drawing is, is very much like that as well. Do you have to remind yourself to be present and in the moment? Because I know some people that that's really where they are. But sometimes they're too much in the present, too much in the moment. And other things suffer because of it. I'm probably more like you. I'm always saying, what's next? What's next? So how do you get yourself to, to slow down and pay attention? Is it the, the act of drawing? Is it something creative? Or can you do it when you're driving in the car singing Metallica with your kids? <laughs> yeah, I, I think in, in light of making myself sound like a monster, it's not that I am always drawing my kids. You know, there are many things I've realized that are stealing my attention and I find that the more organized that I am, the less I'm concerned with things that I have to deal with. So if I, if I can have a really effective and efficient day, I, I accomplish a lot. For instance, in the afternoon when the kids are back, I, I'm not daydreaming and thinking about, well, what about this and what about that? I've done what I needed to do for that day. So just having a routine where I'm able to write things down in the morning or even the night before is what I'm doing more than anything and accomplishing those things that I put down not putting down a list of a hundred things, but like there's three things. If I do these three things tomorrow, then uh, I get to push this pitch out and I get this uh, part of the illustration job done, whatever it is. That is super helpful for me and just being available, finding things that I do with the family that I love and they love. You know, we're, we were playing softball yesterday and very much in the moment of being with the kids and being with my wife and loved every minute of it road trips with the family. Anytime we get in the car and we're going somewhere, all the devices are turned off. We've gotten very deliberate about that. And just being with each other in a cabin or on a hike, I found that if I'm doing something, then I'm capable of being present. If I'm not doing something, if I'm sitting still and passively watching something, or then I'm just lousy. I'm, I'm, <laughs> that's the last place that I want to be is, is sitting still. Well, you and I are both list makers, and I'm going through something right now where I'm trying to make digital lists, but I still write things down on paper, and then I end up not doing half the things because I can't remember where I'm supposed to be looking. So help me with that. What do you do? I had to get off digital. You know, so I, I have um, I have a, a yellow notepad sitting to my right right here that's got just checklists and everything else I'm supposed to go through. I know that digital is, it's got its benefits and I do have an iPad that I, I use, I, I use the notes se section on there and that's been helpful. That's been kind of a new thing. But um, the problem with digital is that the moment I go on there, it's, you know, I've got Instagram notifications and I check the internet, I check the weather, I check news stories. And, you know, before I know it, I've lost even if it's 30 minutes or 45 minutes trying to be efficient through using notes on the, the iPad, I waste a ton of time. So really paying attention to uh, just my calendars, which has never been something I've been particularly good at deliberately padding timelines and deadlines so that I give myself ample time to do things and I can see them and uh, just, just being very intentional with uh, where I put things on calendars and my notepad as simple as that is that's been working for me. I have about 
5,000 post-it notes in my area, in my studio and (laughs) on my wall, on my kitchen table. So I need to uh, get a yellow pad like you have and get rid of these post-it notes. Although they're kind of fun and it does feel good to peel one up and say, yep, did that, wad it up and throw it away. But then there's, you know, 75 behind that one. So, well, you know, I, I have a, I've got a visual system. Uh, when I was working on the, the Abrams book, I had post-it notes because I am visual just like you are. And I had one stack under a column. So I had 33 pieces. So I had 33 notepads. Oh my gosh. And I, yeah. And I, it was not notepads, sorry, 33 post-it notes. On the left side, it was uh, research. Middle section was an index card that said drawings. And the index card on the right was finished paintings or final paintings. And for me, it was immensely rewarding to take a post-it note from the research column and to put it over into the drawing column. And I made sure that I got all the research done on all the pieces before I moved on to a finished painting. So I was kind of batch processing these things visually with the post-it notes and would just lift them up and place them underneath the, the final drawing stage. Or once they were there, they would get walked over to the final painting stage. And once they were painted, I would just ball them up and get rid of them. So I saw these post-it notes just kind of migrate from left to right. And it was immensely rewarding for me to, to know I was making progress on this marathon project that was, that was killing me. But very noticeably that pattern was changing the wall. And that, that was a lot more effective than had I just made a, uh, a checklist or something like that. Well, years ago when I was doing illustration, I got to a point where I was overwhelmed with the amount of work that I was doing. And I ran across, I think it's a proverb from India that said, eat the elephant one bite at a time. And I made myself a little poster in Photoshop and printed it out and put it on the top of my work area. And every day I would just feel so overwhelmed and like, oh my gosh, is this ever going to end? But I just thought, nope, I'm going to take a bite of that elephant today. And it, it worked. It helped. You know, your mental uh, ability to deal with things that are overwhelming sometimes is as important as physically doing the work and getting things done. It, it's 100% true. And, and when I'm working with students or I'm mentoring, I, I ask them about their wildest ambition. You know, what what do you dream of? What do you have to do in your life? What is the most important thing? And they immediately start saying, well, I want to work for, for Pixar. Or I want to do illustrations like jobs or whatever. It's like, no, no, beyond that, like in your life, what do you want your life to look like? How would you design your life and, and uh, curate that? Do you want to travel? Do you want to leave a legacy? Do you want to be in a relationship? Do you, do you think you want kids, whatever it is. And those really big choices are important to those following career choices, right? Because they think they know that what they want. But I, I, I liken it to trying to solve a maze. They're always easier to solve backwards. And if you know where the maze lets out, you can, or what you're trying to get to, you can always follow it backwards to the start. But people don't think about their, their life in the same way they think about their creative endeavors. So yeah, it's, uh, it's something that can be solved. It's something that can be plotted. And yeah, that's just a really important thing, I think, is making people think about those really wild, grand ambitions and, and to break them down into small steps. It, it really does become 
logical process of, well, if you want to be the best artist who's ever lived, you better be the best contemporary artist who currently is. And if you're the best contemporary artist who currently is, then I guess you better be written about and you know, by all the, the magazines and you better be collected by all the, the great collectors and being shown in all the shows. And then you can kind of keep walking that stuff backwards until finally you're like, well, you're never going to get a solo show unless you have a group show uh, or a three person show. And you know, before you know it, you're saying, well, you have to have a portfolio to show somebody and you have to have a best piece and you can get down to the granular idea of what people should be doing on a daily basis in order to accomplish that next step. So that is eating the elephant one bite at a time. I like all of those ideas and uh, the way you framed all of that. And I think that's really important for anyone and everyone to think about. And it's probably difficult for a student to get there in their mind, but at least you are throwing it out there so that at least they've heard of it before. (laughs) And uh, they'll, I'm sure that they start thinking about it. And it's one of those things that if you, if you never hear about things, I think you're the one that used to tell me sometimes people don't know what they don't know. Right. And you're trying to inform people along the way. And I think that's really smart. Thanks. Yeah. It's, it's, there's a lot more to it than that that makes it more directly applicable and solvable, you know? And I think that uh, if I have a student that tells me that they really want to travel in their life, that dictates, well, you probably don't want to be, uh, an employee at you know a studio where you're working tons of hours and you're bound to a certain place, you probably should look at a freelance opportunity or uh, having a a very tight budget that's that's light and not overwhelming you with a mortgage and car payment. So there's there's all sorts of discussions that come from them identifying what they want. And if that's future and the present, we also do a lot of writing about their past and where they came from and why they are who they are and everything else. So there's a lot of things that go into it, but um, they are usually perfectly well equipped themselves to understand what they want and why they want it and where they come from. And if they have those three pieces, then they can kind of figure out how to start blocking in a roadmap. Backing up just a little bit, you mentioned the word chaos, that you wanted to bring chaos into your work so that that would lead you somewhere, which I really like that concept. In my own mind, I'm not really a neat Nick in the studio, but I like a certain amount of order. But when I started doing my silly little collage things that was my playtime because I was exploring pattern and shape and value, and I was just having fun with it, I found that the messier my workspace was, the more interesting that this collage work became because I would drop things on my collage or I would be moving this little torn piece of paper from here to here and I would drop something or I would just make a mistake, just do something randomly that I wasn't in control of and I would look at it and think, Oh man, that's good. I never would have thought of that. That's way, way better than anything that I was working on at the time. So does that ring true with you? And how did you bring chaos to work in this process that you were dealing with, that you were inventing at the time? So I think that chaos is the direct result of confidence that if you have confidence in your ability to find your way out of chaos, then you're much more willing to invite it 
into the process. What a lot of young artists struggle with, a lot of artists in general, is I think that there's this preconceived notion that whether you're illustrators or animators or painters, that visual artists have this really clear idea of what they're trying to make. I think that's actually truly the exception and not the norm, that it is that inquiry and that exploration that uh, where a young artist wants to have this monologue where they're telling the piece what to do and they've got, they're going from drawing and they're trying to acquire skill and trying to make something look representational or like reality or like this thing that they, they want to emulate. An artist who is not bound by technique that can has the confidence to work around that or has figured those things out, then can enter into this dialogue with the piece and you start to put down something and there's an action required on your part, but then you can actually wait for the reaction. You see something and you start to define your own justification as to why something is interesting. You get away from this idea of, well, is it good or is it bad, which is very binary and usually requires an understanding of looking at something that already exists. And once you get into that place where you're trying to find something unique and it's your own, if you give it the definition of like, well, is this interesting, not good or bad, but is it interesting? Does it interest me? Then you have to say, well, why does that this particular mark making or sequence interest me? And you get into the logic of it. But in the moment, it's very much a, I want to have a conversation with a work of art and I want it to give me as much as I'm giving it. And then at some point I've got to, put it back into the, this headlock or whatever and, and try to control it again. But you have to understand first through a lot of experience that your every piece is going to enter an ugly stage. I think it, every piece should, because it means that you're trying something new, you're experimenting, you're, you're learning. And if you get into that ugly stage and you've made it through back to the other side, then you have the confidence that you should be able to repeat that again the next time you have a piece that it's going to go through an ugly stage. You've learned that and you're going to be able to corral it with the skill sets that you've acquired. So just simply that idea of, of the young artist who's aspiring to do the work like a professional artist or an established artist is following this, this kind of prescribed path towards the known. The artists who are innovating are moving with the freedom of moving towards the unknown. And they're willing to, to be in that space where, where chaos is absolutely a welcome part of the process. Do you think you need to be a technical virtuoso to practice what you're speaking about? Or can you begin doing that no matter what level that you are working as a creative person? My opinion is that the skill set is empowering. The skill set is freeing and to acquire those skill sets means that you don't have to worry about them, right? It's, it's kind of the, uh, when Michael Jordan was asked, you know, why he practiced, he was already the greatest player in the history of basketball. And he would practice before practice and after practice and put in three times the hours that other folks were putting in. And he was asked, well, why do you, what do you have left to prove? And he was like, no, you don't understand. I, I practice this way so that when I get into the, into the games that I can just react, I don't have to think. And I think that acquiring that skill set is truly a liberating thing. And that if you have it, then you can always fall back on uh, a technique or a trick or a gimmick or 
a process or a system. And if you don't have those, then you're, you're trying to build this, this bridge from both ends and you don't have a means of connecting to the other side of the bridge. And on the other side of the bridge is, is the communication part of what we do, which is that people still, even though you're innovating, they still need to understand some level of communication, whether it's emotional or logical or story driven or whatever, you have to bring it back into that element of, well, I'm truly not painting for myself. I'm painting because I want to uh, affect somebody else. And um, I, I think if you don't have that skill set, the skill set is the language. The skill set is, is like, it's like telling somebody go write, but you don't need to know English. You don't need to know how to, to, to write in prose and grammar and words. Of course you do. And you can choose to, to break apart language once you know how to speak it and you can play with it and get deeper and deeper and more nuanced with it. But if you don't have the, the ability to actually uh, write and, and, and speak and the language that you're trying to create the story in, then it's just nonsensical. It doesn't, it doesn't, where's the innovation? You're just, it's just chaos. Sterling, what is, in your opinion, the most fun part of your creative process? And I know you do a lot of creative things. You write and, and make pictures. That's the tip of the iceberg. But what's the most fun part about the interior of some of those processes? So it probably isn't a surprise uh, to hear me say that I love ideas. They're hard. They're, they're hard-earned, but I love chasing concepts. And um, I think that's why I'm involved in so many things is because that's where it starts. And if, uh, if I have an idea and uh, it's, it makes sense to realize that concept as a painting, then I'll pursue painting. And if I can amplify that idea uh, as a movie or a video or a video game or a company or whatever it is, then all of a sudden... The idea is is greater than the uh, the silo that my limitations live within, and I have to start to acquire certain skill sets to best realize and best amplify that idea. The part that I think surprises some folks when I say it is like, I, I don't like painting that much. There's other things that I would rather be doing. I I enjoy painting when I get into it, but it is a bloodbath. It is a brutal battle for me. <laughs> I know what you're talking it. about. I think we'll agree with you. Yeah. It's just, uh, and the only way that I'm going to be willing to push through that, that brutal challenge and that just internal, uh, just assault is to love the idea and love the justification for it. And from there I have to love the design and, I have to love the research that, that forms the ideas and I have to be curious about what the result might be. So I, I take things up through a process where I'm doing the, the research. My research these days is whenever possible is a living research because I realize that going on Google is not interesting to me. I think Legendary kind of came from this, right? So it's, I want to go to a place and have an experience and research history or have an opportunity of adventure or whatever it is. And that's my research. That's how I do it these days whenever possible. So that's, that's a super fun thing to do. Like I, this is an excuse for me to take a road trip and go to the mountains. Yeah, I would, that's something I would love to do. And it feeds my artwork and my, my process. Great. And then my, my ideation process, my sketchbook is a passport for me to go wherever I want to go. So if I'm going to go work on sketches and get paid to do it, 
I'm going to go to the coffee shop or I'm going to go to the river or I'm going to go get my hammock and go uh, to the mountains or wherever. And I'm going to make a half day or day of chasing concepts. And I truly love that process. I, I get a high from it. As strange as it sounds, like I'm, I'm, I'm into it and I get lost in it. And uh, once I have an idea that I like, then what tool is going to best amplify that concept? It's surprising. I, I, it's not usually painting. It's not certainly not always painting. It's not usually painting. I think the thing that I would leave with your listeners here is that I grew up loving to draw. I grew up loving to paint. And as it became my profession, I loved it less. When I had to do it for my job and for my work, I started to resent parts of it. And um, I've found my way back to loving drawing. I have not found my way back to loving painting yet. And uh, I think there's a time and place for that. But I think if you asked anybody, would you rather sit in your studio and have this battle or go rock climbing or spend time with your family or your friends, which would you rather do? Some people will say, I'd rather sit down and paint. For me, I'd rather be actively doing something. I guess we talked about that earlier, right? So yeah, it's uh, those are the things I enjoy. And the thing that I love, love about the painting process when I do love it is that I get surprised that I actually end up with something that is better than I thought I could do or different than I thought I would produce. And if it's just a process that's wrote and prescribed, zero interest in that whatsoever. No interest at all. I remember when I was programming for iPhones and iPads that just like you talked about, the idea of what I needed to do and the process of trying to figure it out, and everything was a moving target with Apple, believe me, that was way more fun than the end result. And the reason for doing it was a lot more interesting than having the product at the end. And maybe that's what you're saying about painting right now for you, and I think for me too. You need a good reason to get to that end result. And the fun is working up to it. Is that fairly accurate? Yeah, I think so. And in fact, I would take it a step further and say that when I do successfully accomplish and solve a problem, I have a real letdown in trying to figure out why, why am I so bummed out right now? It's like, I just had a huge show. It's like, yeah, you put all this creative capital into it and you either accomplish what you're trying to do or you don't. And if it comes to a conclusion, it's like all of a sudden I have to reframe my inquiry, my question and think about next things. The last thing I want to do is go back and say, well, I'm going to do another show just like that one. So yeah, you're, you're right. It's the process and the need for my creative uh, work is, is really important to me. When I was going to school, I loved looking at Andy Warhol's work and I loved his story and I loved what he was doing and what he did and what he was continually trying to push the envelope. And part of what he was doing in that pop art, op art scene in the sixties and early seventies was he was trying to let people know that an artist doesn't necessarily have to do their own work. It's all idea driven. So he'd say, okay, here's my idea. And then he would get his studio helpers who were very good, very talented at, at what they did. And he would say, okay, execute these things. 
and then he would make these multiple prints and they went in museums and collections and all that sort of thing. And he proved his point, but then it got to be to the point that they were still so unique to him that it was almost as if he had done the work himself. I'm talking pretty circular here, but basically he proved his point and then the point got lost because he was so smart and so unique that it was still his work, even though he wasn't doing it. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's a whole other conversation to be had there of skill acquisition and the talent or however you define it um, and the concept. And as I get more into collaboration, uh, certainly with my business, it's the business is better because I've brought in Adam Paquette and my buddy, Jeremy Collins and uh, Paula Chino and Martin Patelis, these people who were heavily involved with it. And even though it started off as my idea and and my effort, my work, they've invested themselves in it on some level. And it is just greater than it ever could have been as an individual. And uh, I, I think that with what Warhol was doing, uh, as as you're presenting it, it was a concept, and it, he's thinking like a businessman is what he's doing. I guess there's no real segue that I can use here, so I'll just blurt out the question, and we'll see where this goes. And I was wanting to ask you if you think being an educator, and you've been teaching for, I'll say, 16, 17 years on a very high level, do you think being an educator has made you a better artist or has informed your artwork in some way? Yeah. You know, it's interesting as I talk people through this stuff and I try to share my ideas in the studio, I'm very intuitive. I I work through things and, and, you know, intentional too, but intuition is a huge part of just being in the moment. And, when I go into a classroom and I look out over a sea of faces and I have to work with students, I remember getting feedback on, on a creative process before and they would say things like, well, I'd say, why, why did you do that? I was like, well, it just felt right. It was intuition. And it did me zero good. And I, I refused to go into a classroom and, and tell students that intuition is the reason because it, it doesn't help them on their own path. So I then have to break down intuition into logic. And that's what I love about teaching is the ability to kind of go in and say, well, I did this thing. And someone's like, well, why did you do that? And I have to really think about it. And I start to break it down. I've gotten better at that over the years. And if I can break it down into, you know, smaller steps where, you know, we can eat the elephant one bite at a time, we get to a place where they start to relate it to their own story and they can apply it to their own work. And that's, I think good teaching because now I'm teaching them how to teach themselves. And that's uh, so much better than me trying to just give them a transcribed process or something where they end up producing work that looks like mine or something else that exists. So yeah, I, I love teaching for that fact. And I also love teaching because every student is a riddle and I tell them the first day, I'm like, if I teach you something, if I say something and you don't understand it, the fault is mine, not yours. And I'm trying to give them permission to come and ask me and talk to me about, well, why did you say that? And why did you do that? So I should not be teaching it if I can't explain it to you inside and out. And if you don't understand it, I, I probably have 10 different metaphors by which I can tell you the same story or the same information 
in a story format that you would understand. And I, I love looking over the crowd and, and seeing, asking people like, does everyone, does everyone understand what I'm saying? I see a bunch of nodding heads and I see one person, they're just frozen. Like they don't, they don't get it. I'm like, so let me try to explain it again. I'll look at them and then try to explain it the way that they get it. I, I love that part of it. And that's just, I think, problem solving as well. I like that part as well. And I have talked on this podcast many times with many guests about the difference between an active student and a passive student. And I won't reiterate what I always say. So just tell me what Sterling thinks about the difference between an active student and a passive student. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because it's, uh, you know, the difference between the people who have an opportunity to do this professionally and the difference of people who don't. I always assumed as a student that, first of all, I knew that where I went to school, there was no history of success stories. You couldn't look back and say, well, I'm looking at these 10 people and they've gone on to work in this industry that I want to work in. There was none of that. Maybe 15 years before I got there, there was a success story. But knowing that I was, you know, had a chip on my shoulders like, well, if what you're telling me is true, then how come we can't point at a whole bunch of success stories where people have done what you've said? So I already went in with uh, with the mentality of being an active student and, and researching, bringing information in from outside into my education. And I think I was probably a challenging student, which wasn't great for some of the relationships I had with teachers, but those who were really great teachers, that's what they wanted. They wanted somebody who was engaged in learning. It's like the, like the great Robert McGank uh, that you and I both know. I call him the truth. I could go to that guy and poke holes in his theories and his ideas. And he, uh, he always knew how to answer because he was telling the truth from personal experience. So an active student needs to really clearly identify what they want and work under the assumption that they're not going to be given everything that they need that a professor or a teacher simply cannot teach in a general curriculum to everybody's strengths, needs, and wants. And even though we try to cover as wide of a base as we can, it's that specific knowledge, that granular information that comes from the student's interests where they say, well, I'm really into this. And all of a sudden, a connection forms and the professor says, oh, you should check out this, 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 and this, and then talk to this person. And that student comes back and says, yeah, I did that. And I found out about this convention over here. The professor says, I'm like, I didn't know about that convention. I'd like to check that out. And it becomes a dialogue between colleagues and completely changes the, the, the power dynamic of professor and student into, you know, we're learning from each other. There's a pride in, in seeing somebody that you've crossed paths with. And I take, I, I do my very, very best to take as little recognition in their development as possible. You know, it, it, and I mean that genuinely that someone comes along and they've got all the pieces there and you just, it's your job to kind of just prod them to go in these subtle turns and directions and uh, to see somebody like that go out and get what they want to accomplish incredible things. It's like, seen my my child succeed i mean it, it, it's there's a pride in it that's uh that's very emotional for me sterling what do you think is the biggest mistake that students can do not only learning artwork but maybe students in general a huge thing 
that I have to relay to students and that I would say to, to anybody is that you have to have faith first that your story matters, right? And we all hopefully come from supportive backgrounds where our parents have told us that you're unique, you're special, there's no one else like you. And unfortunately, not everybody comes from those kinds of backgrounds. But I think that there is a, an enormous truth to that where people fall apart and they get dissuaded or uh, sent down a path that isn't the healthiest thing for them is, is when they lose the belief that they have something of significance to contribute. And I think that's the greatest asset that we have as human beings in, in our ability to, to create things that we can, <clears throat> we can imagine. When we let doubt start to sow its seeds uh, too deeply in our, our, our belief system, we st stop pursuing innovation and we move towards things that are known, things that are established. And uh, yeah, I, I just, I think for, for any student, and I mean that in the broadest sense of the term, they have to keep a sense of faith in their own individuality and distinction and believe that in the world that that has value. And if they don't, then there's not any point in a creative industry to, to pursue that as a business. I, I, I just, there's easier ways to make money, I guess is what I'm saying. There's, there's clearer paths by which if people decide that the things that are important to them are wealth and ease of living, there's just easier ways to do things than, than the, daily battle of trying to find your own voice and your own path and truly not everybody's wired that way. So I, I think sitting down, assessing who you are, where you come from. I have people go through this exercise of writing down your, your triggers. So your assumptions and your validations based off of where you came from, based off of what do you want? And why do you want it? Just that, journaling exercise of getting down to those bits and pieces of who you are and why you are um, and how you can take those same things and reshape them in this moment of, of deliberate intention of awareness of who you are right now and where you want to go. It highlights the deficiencies. It highlights the, the things that you need to acquire as far as skill set. It will feature the money that you need to make, the relationships that, that are not good for you, the resources that you have available to you. Like, just putting it all out on paper is an enormous step in moving forward towards any type of goal, especially creative goals. I enjoyed hearing you say the relationships that are not good for you, because I think everyone at some point gets involved some way or another with people that don't help them at all. They hinder them. I call them energy vampires where they will just suck the life right out of you. And you have to get away from those people. And unfortunately, sometimes people's family members can, can be that energy vampire, but then you, you have to, uh, uh, you just have to deal with that situation as best as you can. But there are so many people that are in relationships that are friends or whatever. And it's just like, why do you have anything to do with these people? Because, they're not positive, they're negative, they're needy a lot of times. And, and I'm not talking about abandoning people. I'm just saying be aware of the people out there that are really good and positive and can help make your life as robust and wonderful as it can be. And you know what's interesting about that, Brent, is I, I'm sure I have been that person to somebody else. I have. It's not that they're 
evil or mean or dark or i mean some of them might be but there's just an alignment there and people might look at me and say well i was friends with sterling he was always working and you know there's it wasn't a positive relationship for them and there's things that happen where just finding the right alignment of personality types and people who yeah that they're they're positive or they're at least not negative it is it's really critical it really is what is the best piece of advice that anyone has ever given you? And you can say artistic advice, or you can just say any advice in life in general. So that's a big question. So you can frame that in either one of those ways. Man, okay. Um, <laughs> that's a big question. You know, it, it, it's easy for me to point out the people who have given me the best advice. Oh, that's a good um, because, answer. I like that. Yeah, I, I, I've sought them again and again and again, and they've actually not given me just a singular piece of advice, but they've given me just endless advice. And uh, I would say that my mom tops that list. My dad tops that list. I'm very fortunate to have that and be able to, to truly say that. And I still call on them. I still rely on them as I've gotten older those relationships have changed from the son who needs advice to the adult who's wanting advice. Robert McGank is somebody else. You know, I, I, I leaned heavily on John uh, over the years, John English and Mark. I think that there's, there's a number of people that I could point at who I genuinely would go back to again and again and again, because I always found truth at the well when I went back. I think your answer is far better than my question. So I, <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, if you had any last words of advice for listeners on any subject, I will set the soapbox down here and you can step up there and give us a few words if you like. What I will say is that individuals are needed. That the world is in such a place right now that we are being influenced and altered in the way that we think and our relationships are, are moving forward, that everything is moving towards this grand homogenization of what? I don't know, of, of the average. And everybody's angry. Everybody's pissed off. And what we need are people who are willing to think individually because the amount of unknown information and resources in the world and the universe eclipses the amount of known information a billion fold. I just want to see people who are curious about how they can contribute, how they can be good, how they can be light in the world and find ways of amplifying the best parts of themselves to influence the world that, that is not showing nearly enough of that these days. And uh, that's, that's my soapbox answer for you, Brad. I think it's a great answer, and I agree with it wholeheartedly. I just wish people were nicer to one another, and I appreciate your words trying to put that out there as well. Yeah, man, civilization needs civility, that's for sure. Well, Sterling, I have enjoyed this so incredibly much, as I always enjoy speaking with you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your insights and your great stories. And boy, oh boy, I hope we can do this again. 
Brent, I would be thrilled to do it and love my time with you as always. I just uh, wish it was in person and just want to say uh, how proud I am of you for doing this. This is a, this is a great thing. Thank you, Sterling. Thank you, Brent.